everybody. You're listening to Angel Nears. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community that brings startup builders and experienced operators together to share key insights on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Ole Kujikov, and our guest today is Nathan Beckard, a co-founder and CEO at Foundersuite, a software platform that brings structure, speed, and efficiency to raising venture capital and managing the investor relations. Also, Nathan is a host of the How I Raised It podcast. Uh, today, we're talking with Nathan on how to improve the odds at success when raising venture capital. But before we get into that, Nathan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Excited to have you and learn a little bit more about you. So let's start there. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Nathan, and you know maybe what kind of led you to starting Foundersuite. I came out here, Silicon Valley, uh, to go to college, went to Santa Clara University and took some internships at some of the tech companies in the Bay Area, like Applied Materials and and others, and kind of got a taste of this world of the tech startup world. I'm like, this is really interesting and exciting. Um, when I graduated was when Netscape launched, which was Mark Andreessen's company. And he was like 19 or something. I'm not sure how old he was, but like, you know, basically right out of college and, and kind of watched the internet, you know, startups boom and all the activity around that. And it was really exciting, but I kind of went down a different path. I decided to go into investment banking out of college. It seemed like a really glamorous industry, you know, um, working on deals. And I actually did get to work on some, the IPOs during the dot-com boom. And that was fun, but really kind of always had in the back of my head, I want to be an entrepreneur. I just couldn't think of any good startup ideas to come up with. And so just kind of earned my, you know, earned my chops doing some investment banking at Piper Jaffrey and JP Morgan, working in their private placement group, helping later stage companies raise capital and then went out uh, on my own and hung out a shingle with a couple of friends called Venture Archetypes. And that was a consulting business that was helping earlier stage companies raise capital um, and did that for over a decade. And, um, you know, the whole time was just thinking, like, I really kind of want to start a startup. I just don't have any good ideas. I was like jotting down ideas for stupid, stupid dating apps and things like that, but never anything I could really sink my teeth into. And then one day I just decided, like, why don't we build some software for raising capital? This is what I've been doing for forever since college. And, you know, we're still doing everything in like Excel sheets or Google sheets or, you know, it, it was very like old fashioned, I guess you could say. So let's build some modern workflow tools. So that kind of is the genesis of how we got the founder suite, which is what I've been doing for the past six years. Awesome. Well, sort of continuing along those lines, can you give us the elevator pitch for founder suite? Yeah, so kind of kind of riffing on what I just said there, you know, the way people have always raised capital was using sticky notes and spreadsheets and a bunch of different tools. Like it's kind of interesting if we look at like a lot of startups funding stack, they might have, you know, six different things they're using. Maybe they're repurposing their Salesforce uh, or they're using HubSpot and uh, Crunchbase and DocSend to host the pitch and like a couple other things kind of cobbled all together. And, you know, so we took a, this approach of like, how do we build software tools? If we think about every step in the fundraising journey, when you're a startup and you decide to go raise capital, like what's the first thing you do? Well, really it's identifying a good list of investors. So we built a database for that, um, about 200,000 investors. Then we built a, a CRM 
to manage the pipeline because you're having interactions with a couple hundred investors. So we built a CRM to track all that stuff. And then we added on pitch deck hosting, email tools, investor updates for doing the communications, the marketing, the relationship building, um, added like a collection of documents and templates to download like term sheets and cap tables and stuff like that. And then most recently we added a, a virtual data room to share your confidential information. So that's, and that typically comes later in a fundraiser, right? When you start to get into due diligence. So if you kind of just map every step of the fundraising journey, you know, we're really building tools for that all in one nice cohesive platform. So there's, I guess a little bit longer than an elevator pitch, but that's the, the, the gist of it. Oh no, I hung in there. It was good. Now I just kind of want to learn some basics on fundraising. You know, one kind of key topic or, or, or discussion that's had in the startup ecosystem is whether to self-fund or to take money from outside investors. And that's kind of a key early decision that you make. So I guess first question here is like, when do investors and taking outside money, when, when does that become desirable? I Even though I sell software for helping startups raise capital, I absolutely love bootstrap businesses. I have a, a fetish about entrepreneurs who are able to bootstrap. So like, I guess my, my simple answer to that is if you can bootstrap your business or, you know, grow it using customer cash flow, right? That's the best. You maintain all the control ownership. Uh, you control your own destiny. You know, that's great. But many businesses need some capital. And there are a couple different scenarios when you might think about raising capital. One is you're building something that just takes a lot of money to get going. And you think about, you know, hardware, semiconductors, solar, uh, life sciences, drug development. I mean, there's a lot of different types of businesses that you really cannot bootstrap. You have to raise external capital just to get going. So that's one category. I think the other category is companies that, you know, you, you found something, maybe you got it going bootstrapping, but you found something that is scaling rapidly and you need to scale up rapidly and it's more than what your cash flow is generating, right? So there's an argument for taking ex- outside capital to really scale up, try and gain ownership position. If you think about, you know, certain industries like ride hailing, like Lyft and Uber, I mean, a lot of these industries, there's only going to be a couple winners probably. And so a good argument for taking lots of money is to try and become number one, number two in that industry. So there's a few and there's there's probably a few others I could come up with, but I'd say that that's a good starting point. Okay. What questions do founders need to ask themselves to sort of like, you know, assess whether they need to raise outside capital and, and whether they can do so successfully? Obviously, just having a, a basic P&L understanding of <laughs> your cash flow cycle is always really helpful, right? If you are in a business, whether it's subscription software, software is a subscription or, you know, some ad supported sites. I mean, there's a lot of businesses that you can, um, frankly, get going pretty cheap and the revenue is pretty much instant, right? If you think about a SaaS business, you're getting paid the day someone subscribes to your business. So that's really nice cash flow cycle. Even other, other industries like certain types of hardware, not all, but some, some types of businesses, you can sell the product and then deliver it later. In other words, you're collecting that cash before having to deliver. That's a nice healthy cash flow cycle. So if you have, I guess you'd first of all, ask yourself, is it possible to generate cash from this business in a way that sort of leads your business growth, right? And if so, then, you know, maybe you, you postpone fundraising. Um, I'd say also just, taking a, a more like personal 
approach like, all right, do I want a boss, right? Because if you're own 100% of your company, there is no boss other than your customers. If you are taking outside capital, especially as you raise more and more capital, you will have a board of directors, you'll have people who have all kinds of rights and obligations on your business. And, you know, you have effectively a boss or multiple bosses. So that's, that's a pretty important factor. I would say also, um, you know, if you're maybe a new entrepreneur, or maybe, you know, younger, or I guess it doesn't have to be younger, but do you need you know, ask yourself, do you need expert advice? Do you need outside brains helping you on this? Or have you been working in some industry forever and you really know this inside and out? You really don't need, you know, some some senior advisors, right? Because a lot of times investors also come with advice. So do you do you or do you not need advice? Um, those are a couple of good ones to start with. Okay. Yeah, solid questions to ask. Next, let's talk about like some common investor options or types of investors, I guess would be a better way to say that. There's several common options to raise capital, you know, that includes like family and friends, angel investors, venture capitalists, and strategic investors. Uh, you can differentiate them by, you know, the source of their capital, uh, how easy it is to access them for founders, um, you know, potential value that different investors can bring, and then the costs and the risks. So, that was a lot of options. How should founders kind of choose among the different kinds of investors once they've, you know, identified that they that, that they want to bring in outside capital and and maybe like what are some of the pros and cons of each? Yeah, it's it's a great question. And frankly, we could have a whole podcast just on that topic, but we'll try and make it a short answer. I think first of all, when you're it kind of depends on where you're at with your business, right? Uh, what options you have. Because if you're just basically idea stage or maybe a few lines of code or prototype, you actually don't have that many options. You can't get a bank loan on that. VCs probably aren't going to be too interested. Strategic investors are not really on the table. So you're really limited at that stage to, you know, friends and family. These are people who are investing solely because they believe in you. They It almost doesn't matter what your business idea is. Of course, they want to know. I mean, they're going to ask about that, but it's really a bet on you. So that's your friends and family. Um, and then, you know, the the next stage is that is angel investors. And these are people who maybe don't know you, but are adjacent to your industry. Or sometimes there may be folks you've worked with at a previous company. And, um, you know, they share your vision for the problem you're solving, whether it's a cancer drug or a, you know, self-driving robot delivery van or something like that. Right. Um, and so, so I guess kind of think, think of it in circles, right? First circle is that friends and family, they know you second are strangers who don't know you, but really understand the problem. And then of course, as the business gets off the ground and has some traction, some momentum, the options open up to things like venture capital firms. These are of course, professional investors that have funds that they've raised from LPs and, you know, they're investing in, dozen or more companies a year strategic investors that usually means corporate venture capital that is later stage typically not always but typically later stage and typically they're trying to make bets in industries that are strategic to them so um you know it could be ford investing in an electronic car company because they really will have a stake in that market uh, things like that. You know, I guess other categories that sort of surround these decision trees, crowdfunding. So crowdfunding, I would kind of put you at the pretty early stages. I mean, if you have a 
a proof of concept or initial prototypes and stuff like that, you actually can raise some crowdfunding money pretty early. Um, bank loans and revenue-based financing, these are basically debt instruments. Uh, these are later stage. Once you've got the business up and running, you've got two plus years of track record and you know repeatable cash flow, stuff like that. So there are some other options there. Um, you know, so, so I guess step one would be trying to understand what your options are given your stage of business. And then step two is trying to figure out based on pros and cons, which you, you should take there. The pros and cons of getting friends and family money is people are betting on you. The cons are what we like to say, the, the awkward Thanksgiving dinner when your startup failed and you know, you've got to tell aunt, aunt Gladys, uh, why she's not getting her $50,000 back, <laughs> right? So that can be pretty powerful. Um, angel investors, you know, a little bit less on that because they should be professional angels if you're kind of going on, you know, reaching out to strangers. VCs, same thing. They're they're professionals at this. They know that they're going to lose money on most of their startups. Um, pros and cons, I would go down to strategic investors. You know, here there's a bit of a different, dynamic sometimes there's what's called like a strategic bear hug where maybe you're taking money from a large a large player in the space but there could be some obligations to give them first exit first rights to you know acquire you before you can really i mean there could be terms in there in their money or strings attached to their money uh that maybe isn't in your best interest so you gotta be mindful of that and then just some of the other things we've talked about of course taking loans, you've got to pay back those loans. You know, if the economy tanks, you still got to pay back those loans. Um, and that can, you know, impact you crowdfunding, um, crowdfunding, there aren't that many cons, I guess, other than that, you've got this large volume of people to deal with. And a lot of them are probably not professional investors, so they might be, uh, annoying or, you know, stuff like that. So let's touch on the friends and family money and, and, your thoughts there should it be like a first option or a last resort in, in your opinion i i have raised money from family even for founder suite um i i took i don't know 30k from bank of dad um and actually i've done the, i've done this twice so i did this once right after college i started a business that was doing website designing, you know, back when you could do business and let, and I borrowed money from dad or took money from dad and he would call about twice a week, wanting an update. And it was terrible. Um, love him to death, but you know, it was just way too much. The second time I actually did also raise money from him, but I, I need to, I need to set some ground rules for him. Like dad, I'm going to do a regular company update, uh, a written company update, you know, roughly once a quarter. Um, I'd love it for that to be our main source of information about our business. Cause I'm going to be out there hustling to grow it. So I can't be having like constant chats about this. And he was okay with that. Right. So we just set a little ground rules kind of rounds too. I would kind of put friends and family maybe as last resort, just because, because of all those things we just talked about, right. It, the, the overhead, the awkwardness, if you lose money, which you probably will. Um, but if you have no money, if you have no savings and you're trying to build some business that, that does, take some startup capital, you know, a lot of startups can be started very cheaply, but if you are absolutely doing something that needs some working capital or some inventory, something like that, then um, you might have to consider it. But I would kind of put it as 
option of last resort if you can. So traditionally, outside investors provide two broad benefits to founders. Uh, the first is obvious, it's capital. And the second is improved governance. Is, that, is the latter still the case? Or is that something that founders and investors care less about these days? I, I do think it's still the case. And, you know, it, it kind of depends, again, on round. If you're raising a seed round, you might get a bunch of investors that want to be kept up to date, but they're not going to really apply governance to your business. However, if you're raising, you know, call it a $3 million, $5 million plus round, maybe even more, but there's a good chance you'll do a price round uh, and and po- probably take an investor on your board, right? So now you have an investor on your board, also in the term sheet with a professional venture capital firm, there's probably going to be information rights and a lot of other stuff that, that can, you know, help the business uh, layer on those governments. And that's, that's important as you scale and grow, right? Um, now, having said all that, I think in recent years, founders have had so much leverage and control because the market's just been pretty hot that, I don't want to say they've negotiated away governance, but you know, you're hearing some of these startups where the founders are retaining like super voting rights and stuff like that. Like they've taken away some of the, the investors power, right? Uh, So the founders can maintain more control. Now that is a good question. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because you see that in stream cases like WeWork and stuff like that, where the founders weren't really reined in enough by their investors yet, you know, you could also argue that Facebook is Facebook because Mark Zuckerberg had was able to maintain autonomy and control like he did, even as, as they grew and, and raised lots of money. So um, I think it's still important. I think it's still helpful to start layering on some of those government systems, whether it's even simple, you know, bi-monthly board meetings, right? You've got to prepare for those. You've got to assemble your your, your numbers, you've got to prepare your board deck and kind of walk through that, your strategic plan, stuff like that. Even with Founder Suite, we, we've only raised one round. We have a venture firm and 10 angels on our cap table. But um, my venture firm requires, you know, quarterly financial metrics reporting. So I've got to sit down and gather a bunch of data on our metrics and churn and conversion and stuff like that. And that's healthy to do. Right, it's healthy actually for me even to sit down and look at our numbers. How's our, how are our metrics trending this quarter versus last quarter? Things like that. So yes, I think it's still the case, and it's a good thing. What are the pros and cons um, of taking money from experienced versus inexperienced angels? You mentioned earlier, you know, mo- you know, if you're dealing with an angel investor, you expect them to be professional, but there are sure to be people starting this job uh, at different points in time. So yeah, um, pros and cons for. It, experience versus inexperienced angels and taking money from them in general i think it's healthy for founders to kind of take a take a moment to pause and reflect and like even scratch out a piece of paper like what do i need help with where are where am i weak what are my shortcomings right as a founder maybe i've never hired people before maybe i don't know how to do financials i don't know how to do numbers you know or or um, maybe I really am an engineer. I'm an, a crack crackerjack programmer, coder, but I really don't know how to sell or whatever it is, right? Figure out where your weaknesses are. And then ideally, you know, plug some of those gaps with 
um, with angels and other advisors. They don't always have to put in money, but advisors who can help you with those things, right? It's really nice to have someone to lean on when you're trying to figure out how to, you know, growth hack or do branding or whatever it is, right? Um, so I guess the the short answer is most mostly the pros are on taking money from experienced angels. You know, I guess the only argument you can make about inexperienced ones is uh, maybe they are a little bit less meddlesome, you know, in your business. Like, um, I, I, but that that could also I, I might just actually retract that because I think maybe even ex- inexperienced ones might be more meddlesome in some cases. You know, if they haven't really started a business, they might want have bad advice. So I don't know. I guess <laughs> if if I have to cut to the chase here, try and optimize for experienced investors, obviously, and especially around areas that you are perhaps weak or need some seasoned guidance around. Yeah, that sounds like reasonable advice. How do different types of investors affect how founders try to grow or exit their business? There is a bit of a, a alignment issue, which we can also talk about. I know venture firms, typically their model is they want to make bets in handful of companies and they're really looking for those ones that are going to go to be the next Facebook, Uber, Airbnb, whatever, you know, fill in the blanks there. Ones that are going to go big, really big, not just big, but really big, big, big. So that's what most venture firms incentive is to find those companies, support them, fund them to achieve that. And the reason is their model is, you know, basically they invest in 10 companies they expect that six or seven of them are probably going to fail. One or two might be kind of a you know moderate home run or mo- moderate return, but then one or two out of that ten is going to be a massive home run. So that's kind of what they're expecting their companies to be. Now, if you're raising money from an angel investor, they might be perfectly happy if you raise two million bucks on a five million round five million dollar valuation and then th- two years later sell for 50 million dollars you know they they have a pretty nice roi on that but vcs don't really want you to sell for 50 million dollars so so the, their advice might shape that right angel investor might be telling you to hey you've got an offer on the table from cisco or whoever you know let's take it this sounds good whereas vcs might give you the opposite advice hey let's not take their money. Let's go raise another fifty million from you know venture firms and really go for IPO. Yeah. So mis- misaligned incentives. That makes a lot of sense. But yeah, you're not saying that's all the time. It's just it's just possible that there that, that it may exist. It's just possible. And and I think most inve- most angel investors that are pretty actively investing also really want to find those those home run potential companies, right? So I, I think that scenario, I mean, I'm giving up the angel perhaps wanting to exit sooner. That's not always the case. In fact, many of them are really more in line with the venture models. Like, hey, I really want, I'm a personal angel investor. I really want to find my own Uber. You know, there's a very prolific angel investor named Jason Calacanis, probably heard of him. Um, he does other stuff too. But I swear for the first like four years, all he ever he, he would mention that he was an early investor in Uber 12 times a day. <laughs> like it was his calling card. 
he put money into Uber in one of the very early rounds, and you never heard the end of it. That's fine, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Good for him, you know, but that's, I think, what a lot of angels are trying to find too, right? Got it. Let's address like the cost of venture capital and how it might create misalignment with within the founding team. In terms of changes in overall ownership, giving up a small exit because of like a liquidation preference, you know, that might lead investors to uh, shift their ownership rights. Can you address that as, as a cost of raising venture capital? Yeah, there there is, there can be, not is, there can be misalignments with founders. Um, and, you know, there, the, this, everything is rosy when you're just starting out and, you know, everything's great, right? But as the startup grows, especially as certain things happen. So if maybe... Um, you have a down round, meaning you raise a couple rounds and then the business, you know, takes a hit, isn't growing as fast as you expect, but you've still got to raise more money and you've got to go do a down round meaning your valuation is flat or less than it was the last round. Um, you know, that usually comes out of that hit, that hit to the business usually comes out of the founder's equity, right? Yes. From previous investors too, but a lot of that is coming out of the founder's equity ownership. Um, also, and so that can really be demotivating for founders if if things don't always go perfectly as planned up until the right, you know, all the way through to IPO. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing is, I think, kind of like what we talked about, venture investors are really looking for the next $100 billion company. But as a founder, if you own... 65% of the business, you've only raised one or one round or two and you own 65% of the business and you know, you're offered $30 million for the company. That's pretty meaningful money to a founder, right? But for an investor, that's a failure. That's, that's a poor exit. Um, and so what happens is, you know, the investor says, no, don't, don't exit for $50 million, even though that would, you know, give you $30 million in your bank account. Let's keep raising money. Of course, each time you raise money, your ownership piece gets smaller and smaller proportionally where you go from 65 to, to 50 to 30 to 15, down to five, down to 2% pretty quickly. If you do the math over multiple rounds and, and that is okay. That can be okay when you're ending up with two to five percent of the business when the company, you know, goes public and exits. But if you have an exit kind of in the middle of those two points, right? Two percent of you know two hundred billion or um, or or sixty five percent of fifty million. Um, in between, there there are times when you can actually like make less money on an exit, right? Because uh, your ownership is decreasing quite a bit. So you kind of have to be hoping it's almost like a barbell. We call it like a barbell uh, strategy in, in finance where either you exit early on owning most of it or you exit late six years, eight years down the road, but it has to be massive in between. is sort of this potential valley of death where misalignment can happen. <laughs> Does that make sense at all? I know it's sort of a esoteric concept. No, it did. It did. Uh, the, the barbell helped, uh, put everything together. <laughs> so next, let's talk about some tactics. First question, do tactics for fundraising differ across like different types of startups? You know, for example, software versus hardware startups, maybe biotech or 
health tech, I don't know. Um, do the tactics differ or are they relatively the same across uh, types? They're, I'd say they're pretty similar. Um, you know, think about fundraising as kind of a sales process where you're building a target list, managing that list, working your connections for intros, so on and so forth. A lot of that all applies no matter the type of, and we can go into more of that, but that, that all applies depending on no matter what type of startup you're on. There are some differences, you know, obviously hardware, biotech, things like that can take a lot more money, take a lot more capital. I think it, it is harder maybe to raise money for a hardware startup in general because you have, uh, you know, larger startup costs, you have inventory, right? You've got to acquire chips and, and components and things like that. Um, and, and that's aging, right? So it's just kind of maybe harder. Um, and then I guess a little bit on the technical side of things, you know, if you're a software startup, if you're a SaaS business, I maybe don't know if I should go on record, but we don't have a lot of intellectual property. We don't have a lot of patents and things like that, right? It's, you know, investors are looking at this. What's the potential of our business? What's our monthly recurring revenue? What are our churn rate, growth rate, stuff like that? Now, if you're on the biotech side of things, your intellectual property matters a lot, right? So you probably have a scientific advisory board. Investors are going to probably have PhDs and, you know, or at least some on the team digging into the science of what you're doing. So that is definitely a little bit different. Got it. Okay. You mentioned building a list of investor prospects. How do you go about doing that? How do you build a list of prospects that are, you know, likely to fund your startup? Yeah, there's... There's a handful of ways to do this, and I, I I will preface this by saying I don't believe there's really any one-stop shop for this. I think when I'm even telling our founders, we've got 3,000 or so startups using Foundersuite, and I tell them, start searching in Foundersuite. We've got a database of 208,000 investors grouped by angel VC, corporate VC, family office, private equity, fund of funds so on and so forth. So start in Founder Suite, but also look at uh, AngelList. You can search there. You can search in Crunchbase. If you have access to it, there are paid databases like uh, PitchBook, um, like CB Insights, uh, probably a few others I'm forgetting. So, you know, there's half a dozen databases you can start searching on. Lots of other places to search, though. You can um, read... Like I, I subscribe to a newsletter called Strictly VC. Uh, there's another one called Term Sheet that's by Fortune. Um, and a lot of these are just announcements of like startups that have raised capital and who funds them. So that's a good way to kind of get familiar with who's writing checks into certain spaces, you know, um, and, and picking up leads, right? You're kind of thinking of this like let's build a list of leads or prospects. Um, so, so databases, newsletters, um, also going on like Twitter and uh, uh, Quora and places like that to browse around, start following investors. They'll recommend other investors to follow, start, you know, people putting together lists all the time. We do this on LinkedIn all the time. We're putting the list, like list of uh, 200 metaverse startups or, you know, whatever the list might be. So that's useful. And then I think there are some other tools I, th I think we'll get into, but like, Using LinkedIn is pretty helpful. Um, those are probably some pretty good places to start, right? You start hunting, searching, Googling around a little bit. 
you'll start to find investors in quite a few places. Yeah. So we'll hold on to the LinkedIn question for just one moment. Uh, first, I just want to ask, like, what are some of the critical first steps that founders should be taking before they send out that first fundraising email? Well, I'll just state a few, hopefully kind of obvious things, but um, one is really making sure the list you put together that we just talked about is is a good list. Um, in sales, you know, if you've been in sales, we call this qualifying the list. And that means really just check, like digging into each potential prospect or each investor, looking at if they're a venture firm, they have a website, I'm sure, looking at what they've invested in, uh, reading through their website, making sure they actually do seed stage deals. If you're a seed stage startup, making sure, you know, they really do medical devices. It, uh, if you're a medical device startup, trying to find the right person at that venture fund. Um, you know, a lot of venture funds will have a six six to a dozen or sometimes even more partners, three, three to a dozen partners. These are usually the ultimate decision making. And sometimes they're segmented by one guy will do enterprise software, one gal will do, you know, healthcare and biotech, and another gal will do SaaS or something like that, or sometimes a whole venture. So kind of figuring out the right person at the venture fund that you should be approaching, targeting. And then, so, so qualifying your investors, making sure they're a good fit, scrubbing your list that you put together by hunting through all those databases we just talked about. Then the other, other part I would say is just making sure your materials are, are really good. Putting together your pitch materials. That means a pitch deck. 10, 12 slides going through, you know, problem solution, market traction team, marketing strategy, advisor, stuff like that. I mean, um, putting together a really nice, clean, crisp deck, probably a financial model too, showing how, how much you're raising, where that's going to take the company. Um, maybe putting together a little one-pager executive summary, tear sheet, some people call it a memo. I mean, there's different names, but it's all basically just a written kind of mini business plan. I don't really recommend doing a business plan anymore. I used to sell those for a living when I was consulting, but people don't really read full business plans anymore. But, you know, a little mini business plan is, is pretty useful. Um, so that's good, making sure those are all really compelling before you go out and talking to investors. And then the last thing I would mention before you, you know, start fundraising is, trying to find uh, an intro path, the mutual connection, um, hunting on LinkedIn, and we can get into LinkedIn, but hunting on LinkedIn to see if you have anyone in common or, you know, trying to build an intro path, maybe reaching out to a portfolio company founder that the investor has invested in, getting a dialogue going with them, uh, really trying to map a connection path to everyone on your target list. Uh, so here's that LinkedIn question. Uh, how do you use LinkedIn and cold emails to raise seed capital? Yeah, so so two ways to use LinkedIn. One is what I just mentioned, you know, plugging every investor in there and seeing if you have any mutual connections. And I try to identify a connection path to the investor. So that's one approach. The other is really more using LinkedIn search function. You can go in and search on a keyword phrase like angel investor, right? Up at the top of the screen in the bar, in the search bar, right? Searching for angel investor. 
or venture capital, things like that. Right. Um, and, and then, you know, usually filtering that down a little bit. So going, it's easier to show than tell, but basically going in to the results there and uh, filtering by like second degree connections, maybe filtering by location. If you're in Austin, Texas, let's look at all the angel investors in Austin, Texas. Right. Um, and, and, uh, and then going through kind of each person's profile and trying to identify, does this person who calls herself an angel investor in Austin, Texas, does she invest in enterprise software? Cause that's what I do. Right. Um, really just kind of going through the results and picking out prospects, you know, that look, look good. And obviously I've also trying to find again, if you have any mutual connections. So that's, that's pretty good. Um, now cold email is a different topic altogether. I don't recommend doing cold email. So I'm still using LinkedIn basically as a prospecting tool and a connection path mapping tool. I don't really recommend using cold email. If you can, if you, if you can find a connection path, it's always exponentially better uh, to get introduced to an investor than the cold email. And the reason is just that investors are getting hit up by people all day long, both by people they know. They're getting these intros all day long, but they're also getting just a flood of cold email. And a lot of people don't even really read that too much, you know. So, um I, I don't recommend cold email too much. Um, you know, I think you can use LinkedIn for later rounds. I know that was the other part of that question. Um, later rounds will be a little bit different, though, because in later rounds, presumably the business is already fairly established. Uh, you've got metrics. You already have investors. Uh, like, like, for example, we have one seed venture fund, 10 angels. I should be able to call on all those people for intros to help me also to help me build my target list, stuff like that. So I'd say there's a little bit less, um, a less of this prospecting element for later rounds, but yeah, LinkedIn can still be helpful to map those connection paths. Next one. How do you set up a fundraising timeline and run a tight process? So this is important and you know, one of the things that a lot of founders, especially first-time founders, don't really get is that fundraising is a momentum game. Um, deals live and die by momentum. And what does that mean? That means a deal gets hot and uh, lots of investors want to get into it and founders have negotiating leverage and they can pick and choose who they want in the deal and they can set the timeline and all that good stuff. Or the deal is not hot and founders have to be kind of beggars, not choosers, or worst case, the deal really is not only not hot, but lukewarm. And then it drags on for a long time and kind of gets stale. And then investors really can pick up on that. And, you know, they just shy away from it. So there's this correlation between like momentum and how likely it is your, your deal is going to get done and part of that is also, so, so how do we get momentum going? Well, key to that is running a pretty tight process, um, packing a lot of investor meetings into a pretty tight timeline, right? So you're having three, six, 
even 10 meetings a day. And, you know, especially if we're doing a lot on Zoom, you can do that, right? You can pack your days full of pitch meetings. So you're getting a lot of interest and excitement going around your deal. Um, once you get a lot of interest in your deal and maybe, and I know founders who, uh, who have done, you know, 10 to 12 meetings a day for, for a couple weeks straight. I mean, they're just crank. They've built a list of 200 really good investors that got introduced or in some cases, you know, reached out cold, but they're, they're packing their days with, with meetings, getting that momentum going. Because investors will ask you, how's your round coming together? How's it going? And you want to be, you know, indicating that you're having a lot of meetings that you're getting interest in your deal, <laughs> basically. Now, once you really get some good interest going, then it, you can really set that timeline, right? So if you have, um, and I've seen founder, I, haven't, I didn't do this myself, but I've seen founders be very explicit about their timeline once they get some momentum going. So they're having a lot of first round, first first round meetings with investors. And then, you know, they say, all right, we're trying to, um, our aim is to fill up all our, finish up all our first round meetings by, you know, June 14th. And then, you know, everyone who's interested in getting into our IP or talking to our technical advisory board, we're going to do that June 15th, 16th, and 17th. Then second round meetings, you know, the week after that and aiming for, uh, you know, everyone who's interested in putting down a term sheet, looking to get that in by the end of June. And that's the timeline, right? So they've got the investors kind of knowing when they need to complete technical due diligence, think about terms, put down term sheet and, you know, get through due diligence and, and the other steps there. Um, but that what that does is it keeps investors kind of marching to your timeline because otherwise deals tend to drag out. If you sort of let investors run the timeline, uh, it can run and, and bleed on and on and then eventually get stale, which is the worst thing you want. So, um, yeah. So if, to sum this all up, your job as the founder is to get momentum going for your deal. How do you do that? Have a lot of calendar density pack your schedule with investor meetings, keep everything moving, running a tight process. Here's where we go back to the CRM, right? And this is not a product plug, but like when you're talking to 200 investors, every discussion you have with one of those investors often leads to like follow-up action items. So you have to send them your financials, you have to send them some customer references, whatever it may be. So that's where a CRM is really helpful, even if you don't use FounderSuite. Um, because you you got to stay on top of all that stuff. You never want to be the bottleneck. You never want to be the the thing that's slowing things down. So that's where you need a CRM to help you run a tight process. Right, right. Now that makes a lot of sense. What are some of the right questions to be asking uh, VCs? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I think you have to establish. This is a very fuzzy answer, but I think you have to establish just a good kind of gut feel for this investor, right? Is this person someone you want to, you know, if you drink alcohol, if you want to have a bottle of wine with on a regular basis, right? Would you enjoy that or not? <laughs> um, is this person someone you just feel comfortable with and trust that you could, you could, if you needed to call them up, um, telling them that you're you know, uh, your co-founder just left or something, right? You know, talking through stuff like 
that are difficult topics. Um, so, so first I would just screen for kind of gut feel and then, you know, what questions you actually ask? Well, asking, you know, how they would help you grow your business is helpful. How, 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 what's your, you know, typical value add, like really pitch me a little bit on helping, you know, if I let you into founder suite as an investor, how will you help me? Right. Just tell me sort of your value add and different investors have different value adds. I mean, you have firms like Andreessen Horowitz who have this like whole operations staff that help out and stuff. Um, other VCs have different expertise and specialties, right? So kind of let them pitch you a little bit. I would also say this, you didn't ex- ask this exactly, but you know, questions you should also ask portfolio company founders that that investor has invested in um, reach out cold, cold, cold email, a couple of the founders that the person has invested in and ask them questions like, Hey, has there ever been a time where, you know, your company was really struggling and how did, you know, Samantha act? Was she helpful? Did she ghost you? Did she go silent when things were rocky? Right. Things like that. Right. You're kind of getting into like how valuable really is this investor. Uh, And I'd probe into things like that with founders. Um, In the perfect scenario, you even find maybe a startup founder whose company failed. Ask them what that investor was like uh, when the company was failing, right? <laughs> they might not want to talk to you. You know, people like to kind of forget about this stuff sometimes, but but that could be the most telling. Like, like Samantha turned out to be a real jewel or, or the opposite. I could use some colorful language here, you know, like really get into that. Um, so I, I, I dig into that. Great advice. Uh, all, all uh, yeah. I feel like all good, solid things to mention. How about some of the no-nos? Like what shouldn't you be doing when you're fundraising? Yeah, there's a lot. This is what is also tricky for people who are maybe the first, you know, raising capital first for the first time. There's a lot of landmines out there, a lot of ways to screw up, screw it up. Um, one is I just told you how important momentum is. And you want to be expressing that with other investors, like, "Hey, we've I've got twelve meetings lined up this week. We're expecting our first two term sheets next week." I mean, you want to be able to express and signal that your deal is getting momentum, but you never want to lie or exaggerate, right? And it, it, there's a fine line there. Believe it or not, that sounds so obvious when I'm saying it, but like, you know. I see founders like exaggerating or, or even outright lying about uh, the fact that they have a term sheet or something coming when they really don't. Right. And I've seen that come back to bite founders. If an investor gets even a whiff that you're like lying about something they're they're gone and they often might even tell other investors too, and your deal just collapses. So that's ob- uh, should be obvious, but it's a big no, no. Um, you know, promote your startup and, and the deal and get that momentum. Just never go over that line. I think other critical things to do, like we talked about qualifying your investors and really making sure everyone you're targeting, everyone you're reaching out to, getting introduced to, you know, really does your type of deal. Um, I think founders skip that step a lot and they'll have investors on on their list. And we even get this from, I'll get an email from an investor saying, Hey, I'm getting these emails from startups that are using Founder Suite. I do, I do, you know, insure, I do insure tech investing. I'm getting 
emails from, you know, these startups doing uh, something completely irrelevant. Another mistake I see founders make a lot is not putting in the time to qualify their investors like we talked about. Um, you know, they, they, they don't do the digging and the research on investors and they're reaching out to investors who don't do what, what type of deal they do. Right. And that just looks bad. That looks bad. Um, cause it, it shows that you've like skipped a step. Right. And, and that's bad. Um, you know, and then lastly, I'd say another no, no cold email kind of t- already talked about that. Um, going out with just unprofessional pitch materials. I see a lot of deals struggle and then I'll talk to the founder. Maybe they're a customer founder suite and I'll say like, send me your deck. Let me just see if there's any red flags in your pitch deck. They're jumping out and their pitch is terrible. You know, it's like confusing, cluttered slides. Um, just too much text usually maybe they're ugly slides. I mean, you know, it all matters, right? It all counts because you're competing against 30 other companies that they're talking to that week. Right. Um, so just, you've got to look and feel professional and that's, that's, you know, pretty important. Next talk about nurturing investor relationships and, and why is that key to fundraising success? Yeah, this is something I, I think, just so important and a lot of founders also maybe skip this step is they you know they've started a startup they've gotten it off the ground a little bit and they said all right it's time to go raise money let me just go start hitting up investors and that can work i mean if you if your growth and metrics are amazing that's you know going to be exciting to investors but most investors want to get to know you over a period of time. There's a bit of a, a lead time that is usually required um, where they've seen you, they've gotten to know you, they've had a couple different touch points with you, uh, they've seen the business progress and develop a bit, and then they want to raise capital. So, you know, so if we can start this whole process early, and I know this is hard to do because if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably thinking, I need to raise money today. How do I do it? <laughs> but better is if you can start to nurture relationships with investors, you know, I like to say six to 12 months before you plan to raise money. Um, and that can be as simple as, you know, as you're meeting, as you're building a target list, reaching out to them and just saying, Hey, I'm not raising money, but you are right in our sweet spot. I'm building this cool, cool, you know, startup platform for managing investor relationships, whatever it may be. And I see you've been kind of talking about this space on Twitter. Can I send you our company updates? It's only one page, take two minutes to read. And, and you start to send those updates, you know, months in advance. So they start to get to know who you are, what progress you're making. They start to see the product tape shape, you know, maybe they see new features and stuff released. And, and then when you're actually ready to go raise money six months later, they've, they've gotten those touch points in with you. They know what your business is all about. So that's really powerful. And just to kind of connect the dots to all this, I have seen startups do that process where they build a list of 100, 200 investors. They nurture them for a year, even up to a year, uh, doing investor updates, 
maybe engaging with them on Twitter, you know, a bit too, having coffee or Zooms periodically with them. And then when it's time to raise money, they say, hey, we're raising money next month. And their round is like taken up even before it goes out to market, right? They, it, It's like a stealth round. It's kind of like you're in Los Gatos. You know, it's like California Bay Area real estate where these houses are are selling before they're even going on the market because there's already a relationship there. So that's really, really powerful if you can do that. What does it mean though? Bottom line means you start the process of building the target list and, you know, interacting even in a very lightweight way with investors well in advance of when you plan to raise money. Let's ask a few questions. I I know we're over time, Alex. I hope you got another uh, five minutes because I want to ask you about Founders Suite. You mentioned a little bit about why you started the company. So let's just um, let's just ask who are the people behind Founder Suite today? Yeah, yeah, we've got a great little team. Um, we're still pretty small. I think we're up to like 16. I gotta have to sit down and count, but like 16 or 17 or so. Um, we're very uh, global. I like to think we're kind of the modern way of building startups. I've got people in um, San Francisco Bay area in, uh, Poland, Norway, Ukraine, Spain, India, um, even, uh, one or two people in Latin America and, you know, people are doing different things. I mean, it's kind of interesting. Obviously we've got some good engineers in Ukraine and Poland. We've got some good marketing customer support in Norway. Their English is perfect. You know, we've got some um, pretty clever kind of growth hack folks in Latin America. It's it's really cool. So that's who's behind Founder Suite. And I'm the founder. I'm a solo founder, which has had its share of challenges and, and benefits. <laughs> you know, that could be its own podcast right there. But um, yeah, that's, that's it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Follow-up question with people all over the world. What time do you have the all-hands meeting? Well, that's an interesting question because um, we, we, yeah, we really don't. It's, it'd be impossible. Um, we have stand-ups with each different team. Um, you know, no one actually is an interesting question because we never actually have an all-hands meeting. We have different stand-ups with each, with product team, with marketing team, um, and for better or for worse, I typically make them kind of bend to my schedule. You know, it's West, well, a lot of West Coast hours, but um, but everyone's awesome. Have just wonderful, lovely people, smart, dedicated, fun, happy people working at Founder Suite. So it it all works out in the end. So, well, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, just thought I'd ask. I figure it's a it's a challenge that a lot of us are dealing with uh, in this remote first world. So, yeah, uh, thought I'd ask. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Last one here for Founder Suite. What are some of the key milestones that you've achieved along your journey so far? Yeah. I mean, it's it's been a pretty fun journey to to have launched Founder Suite. We launched actually just with the investor CRM, so it was our first product we launched. And then about once or twice a year, we've launched new products, and so we've built on top of that platform um, with everything I described earlier in this show, which is like the investor database, pitch deck, virtual data room, all that good stuff. So it's been fun to kind of, 
you know, put down this foundation with the investor CRM and build around it. Um, and, uh, and you know, we haven't even raised prices in that whole time. So we're just adding more, as I like to think we're adding more and more value to our customers, um, keeping prices fixed and just seeing some awesome results from our users, our big vanity metric. And I haven't even updated this in a long time. So I'm sure it's way higher, but, uh, our users have raised over three billion with a B in in capital, um, and we've had over twenty thousand startups come on the platform. So some pretty exciting, you know, impact I guess on the startup ecosystem. So those are things I'm proud about. All right. Well, this will be the last question. Is there anything I should have asked you about Founder Suite? I don't think so. I think we've covered it a a lot. I mean, I think. You know, a lot of the principles we've talked about on this show apply whether you use Founder Suite or whether you use something else, right? Building a good target list of investors, nurturing those relationships, running a tight process, um, you know, things like that. And and that's what Founder Suite is all about. So we do have people that use other tools and that's okay too. But I think the principles, hopefully you've gained a little bit from from this talk about that. And, uh, but of course we'd love it if you did check out founder suite and you can create a free account and play around with that. Um, so yeah, check it out before we get out of here, before we get out of here, what's the best way for, uh, well, you already said, um, you can make a free account, but do you have any other calls to action for the listeners? Maybe where they can reach you or learn more about founder suite or, you know, uh, if someone's listening to this yeah. show and they've made it this far, what would you like them to go do? Yeah. <laughs> Kudos for you. Uh, send me an email, Nathan at Founder Suite, and I'll send you a, a swag pack if you've actually listened this far because this is a long show. Send me a, an email and I'll send you our – I think it's like a beer cozy and like a iPhone stand and a sticker. I don't forget what's in it. It's like a little pack. So call to action really quick. I would say obviously create, create a free account, F-O-U-N-D-E-R-S-U-I-T-E.com, Foundersuite, one word, .com. Um, great content on our blog.foundersuite.com. We have that podcast, like I mentioned, or you mentioned actually called How I Raised It. I, I would love to plug that. It's on you know, iTunes, Spotify. You should be able to find it on YouTube as well, How I Raised It. And it's just interviews with startup founders on literally how they raise capital. And we There's so much good content. And I thought I knew everything about raising capital. I started to do this podcast and I learned a hundred more ways to raise capital. You know, it's really good tactical stuff and it, you can, you know, find companies that are doing similar industries to you, probably gaming to, to sex products, to biotech, to, you know, big profile names like cameo or masterclass or Patreon, Patreon. Like we have some pretty big names in there too. And it's pretty interesting. So check out the podcast. And then very last, I know we're way over time, but, I'd love to connect on LinkedIn. Maybe just mention, um, you know, my name is Nathan Beckord. Look me up on LinkedIn. Mention you heard about, you know, the us on Angel Nears, and uh, we'll connect. And we put out a lot of really good content on uh, LinkedIn. Just things like sample cap tables or sample pitch decks. I think we've got that coming up. Like really good free stuff. So check it out. Awesome. All right, Nathan, thank you. We're going to end the show there. Uh, to the listeners, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, leave us a rating. Um, Nathan, thank you for joining the show today. It was uh, 
it was definitely a learning experience for me. And um, yeah, we appreciate the little bit of extra time we got uh, to, to spend with you because it was uh, definitely valuable learning time. So um, thank you. And yeah, thanks for listening. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you.